Thank you for listening to a sermon from the District Church. For more information about us, please visit www.thedistrict.church. Additionally, if any of our sermons have brought encouragement to you, would you please let us know by emailing us at info at Amen. Good morning, church. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and grab them. Luke chapter 5 is where we're going to be. And if we could go ahead and dismiss our kiddos, 3 to 5, head off to your class, and 6 and 7, head off to your class as well. Luke 5, uh, week 23, I think, in our series. <clears throat> Last week we saw Jesus, uh, we saw him save a tax collector named Levi, who's also Matthew, and eventually becomes one of the 12 apostles. Matthew, after meeting uh, and following Jesus, he throws a great feast for his tax collector friends and, and his neighbors as well in order to just celebrate this, this new relationship with Jesus that he now has. And what we see from that is we saw that the Pharisees begin to grumble about Jesus dining and drinking and eating with sinners and, and why he should essentially associate with these types of people. And Jesus responded and answered them, and I'll just kind of paraphrase it, who else would I be with? I didn't come to save the righteous, but sinners. And so today what we're going to see is these Pharisees continue grumbling and taking their criticism of Jesus' ministry sort of a step further as they continue to just kind of analyze and critique and just look for ways to cause him to stumble. And it really comes down to this idea of fasting. They bring up this topic of fasting. And one of the cool things about this passage is um, it's not a passage about fasting at all. Um, rather, it's Jesus keeping the feast going. Um, and, and it's really more a passage about feasting and enjoying and savoring Jesus in a new relationship. And so, um, so it's not one where it's like, all right, well, we're going to talk about fasting. And so let's, let's dive into what that spiritual discipline that we like to avoid often looks like. And, and how does it work in our lives? And how do we incorporate it more? Uh, again, it's, it's really not that at all um, as far as this passage goes. What it's really about is, is just the, the uniqueness of the gospel. All right? It's about the uniqueness of the gospel. It's about the fact that the gospel is um, exclusive to any and every other religion that possibly exists out there. It's a uniqueness about the gospel because if you try to work the gospel message into any other type of religion or practice or religious belief or religious system or whatever it is, it just it doesn't work. All right, The gospel ceases to exist in that type of system or, or belief system or structure or strategy. It just doesn't work. And so you cannot mix the gospel. You cannot blend it with any other type of, of way of thinking. You cannot mix it with Roman Catholic or Orthodox sacramentalism. You cannot mix the gospel with liberalism or conservatism. You cannot mix the gospel with Mormonism or the religion of the Jehovah's Witness or Christian science or just any other religion. It, it stands on its own and what we're actually seeing in this passage is that it doesn't even mix with Judaism all right it doesn't mix with their system of beliefs that they have shifted to ultimately believe that this way of doing things ultimately leads to salvation ultimately leads to a relationship with God a fixed relationship with God and and, and ultimately doesn't really to lead to righteousness but Judaism is, is ultimately just a, a self-righteous pursuit. 
And that's what we're seeing in this encounter with, again, these Pharisees. And there's actually kind of two groups here, depending on which translation you're reading. One of the translations, when it starts out in verse 33, talks about the disciples of John and the disciples of the Pharisees and how they come together in order to ask these questions of Jesus. And so there's even some confusion going on here, not just of the disciples of the Pharisees that basically are the followers of the scribes and the rabbis of that view, but also even some of John the Baptist's disciples. Now, John the Baptist at this context or in this situation is still locked up in prison, um, but his disciples are still searching and they're still looking and they're still trying to learn and they're trying to figure out how do we play this out in our daily lives and so some of them are even coming and probably borrowing again some theology from the the rabbis and some theology from the scribes and the pharisees and the teachers of the law and kind of mixing it in to where now they're having a question they're observing Jesus's disciples and what they're doing and they're saying this this doesn't seem to jive with what we thought was going to be righteousness, what was going to be holiness, what was going to be a way of life. And so they, they start asking these questions. And so let's read it together, and then I'll come back to verse 33 and begin breaking it down. And they said to him, The disciples of John fast often and offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees. But yours, referring to Jesus' disciples, yours eat and drink. And Jesus said to them, can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. He also told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does... The new wine will burst the skins and it will be spilled and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. And no one after drinking old wine desires new, for he says, the old is good. So this is um, one of my kind of favorite shifts when it comes to just reading the Gospels. Because this is when you actually start to dive into a little bit more Jesus is teaching, um, where up to this point, all we've kind of seen have been Jesus taught, but then we get to see the specific healings that he engages in. We get to see the specific works of miracles that he begins to do for different people. This now starts to dive in a little bit more where he starts to bring in some teachings and as we'll get into the coming weeks, starts to dive into the Sermon on the Mount as well. But one of the things that Jesus loves to do when he teaches is he loves parables. He loves giving stories. He loves giving illustrations. And this is exactly what he is doing in this scenario. If you were to just read through this, you're like, I have no idea what he's talking about with the old wine skins new wine skins new patch like is is all of a sudden Jesus like you know a, a fashion designer and he's talking about clothes is he a winemaker like what what is he um, and 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 so really what he does is he provides four illustrations four different illustrations to try to prove this point of what he is doing with his disciples that is contrary to what the disciples of John and the disciples of the Pharisees believe he should be doing. And so he actually kind of gives them an illustration of what that actually is. 
But before we get there, to be able to contrast these two things, fasting and feasting, I do want to kind of let you in a little bit on just kind of what fasting is and what they thought Jesus should be doing. Because what fasting is, generally speaking, is, um, is where you spend some time abstaining from, typically food, in, in our context, but in, in or in this context, in our context, sometimes we'll assign some social media or food or uh, sweets or whatever it might be. We'll throw a bunch of different things in there. But you abstain from something that you desire, that you want, in order to um, kind of starve out yourself. So that when you start to feel that, that feeling that you have of like, I, I long for this, I want this, or I don't like this, I'm feeling uncomfortable now... It allows you to spend some time meditating on the sin in your life. It start, it, you're, you're allowed to see kind of in your life not only the sin that is there, but also the need that you have for a Savior. And so fasting is a, is a spiritual discipline, is a spiritual practice in which we put ourselves or posture ourselves in that position where it's uncomfortable so that we can do some real dealing with sin in our lives or, or, or inconsistency in our lives in order to focus on our need for a Savior and have Him meet us in that place. And then we can, after that, kind of come back to being restored when we start engaging back in with typically food um, as what they were doing in this context. And so what the Pharisees done, have done is they've taken that practice of fasting and they've systematized it. All right, so they were now specifically fasting on Mondays, fasting on Wednesdays. And what they would do is they would fast from sunrise to sundown. And it, and it really wasn't enough time for them to, to really reap any type of benefits when it comes to actual fasting. Um, at the same time, they weren't actually dealing with their sin. It became for them a way in which it was self-righteous, a way in which they could prove to others that they were holier than thou. Uh, so much so that they would actually begin to whiten their faces uh, with makeup or whatever it was, whiten their faces in order to prove to other people that they were like beginning to be malnourished because of how much they were fasting and how much they were abstaining from food and drink and, and look how awesome I am because of how far I'm taking this uh, specific spiritual discipline. And so that's what they were doing. They were systematizing this and believing that they were essentially earning righteousness through the process. And so they come to Jesus, and they basically start criticizing him for not fasting. Now, if you've been following along with us throughout Luke, Jesus did fast, right? When he entered into the wilderness, what did he do for 40 days? He fasted. All right, he fasted. And so you talk about someone who is like, all right, you do your little sunrise to sundown uh, fast. I'm going to go away for 40 days. Like, there, there should be no reason for them to criticize Jesus or his disciples for fasting. Not only that, and this one is just kind of uh, food for thought. Um, not, pardon the pun there, but food for thought. Jesus, even when it comes to the Last Supper and when it comes to the last meal, that kind of spiritual meal that he does with his disciples, he says this in Luke uh, 22. He says, take this and share it among yourselves, for I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine from now on until the kingdom of God comes. What he is saying there is, in that last supper, there's going to be a feast in heaven that it was foreshadowing. 
A feast in heaven, the wedding supper of the Lamb. All right, where when we all come and be with Jesus for eternity in glory, he is going to throw a massive feast. And what he says is, is at that last supper, he says, I'm not going to partake of any type of feast or fruit of the vine until that day. So he's been fasting for 2,000 years now. 2,000 years. He has every right to be able to just indulge himself as a man in heaven, sitting at the right hand of the throne of God. He can do whatever he wants. But he's choosing to wait for us. To wait for us. Why? Because of the point of this passage. These four illustrations that we see is that Jesus is basically telling them this is not a time to fast. Now, as we get later on in Luke, and he says, there will be a time that is for you to fast when the bridegroom leaves and ascends into heaven, and you're in that waiting period until he comes back and gathers everyone for the wedding feast of the Lamb. There's going to be some seasons where we fast, and absolutely necessary. But we'll get to that when we get to it, and help you in what some practical ways to fast would be. But here Jesus is saying, it's still time to feast. It's still time to to feast. And Jesus said to them, Can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. What he's saying here is a wedding feast was the most vivid picture of joy and happiness in their culture. It was the most vivid picture of joy and happiness that they had in their culture. Culture during, And they would have a week-long wedding feast. And it was understood that joy was the most important, it was more important than conformity to religious rituals. So they were allowed, if there were any religious rituals or systems that they were to abide by or follow in their culture, and this even worked itself out with Jews, during that week-long wedding feast, you did not have to fast or do anything else along those lines. You got to let joy and happiness be the priority and the primary thing in which you indulge in during that entire week. During that entire week. And that was the thing here is basically, they thought Jesus was too happy. Like, they thought he was too merry. They thought he was having too much of a good time. And, and sometimes, can we at least just be honest that maybe some of our church backgrounds feels that way? Like if we were enjoying ourselves too much, that, well, that's sinful. And that's essentially what they're accusing Jesus of now, is that he is a drunkard and a glutton. That he's indulging himself too much. Now, we know Jesus doesn't sin, so he's not getting drunk and he's not being a glutton. But he is to the fullness that is allowed for the human body. He is enjoying himself with his disciples. And he is full of joy and he is full of happiness. And they are experiencing joy and happiness as they are engaging with the bridegroom. Now, this is another thing that is brought in here that Jesus has not taught on yet or has not introduced, but he has introduced this new language. At this point, they're getting upset with him because he's saying, I am, uh, or behold, I am the Lamb of God, as John the Baptist said as he's walking down the, the road, or I am the Messiah. Like there, There's some things that they're starting to worry about. Why is he calling himself the Son of God? That title is reserved for the Son of God. And we don't know if you are yet. We're kind of unsure about that. But here he enters in and he 
brings in a new idea of a relationship that is more than just a distant God with people that is sort of putting up with them for the last several thousand years and eventually is going to send a Savior to help them and take care of them and whatnot. But God is still distant in a Judaic viewpoint. And here he's saying it's way deeper than that. It's way deeper than that. There is a union between the Son of God and what He is uh, creating in this new community, this new community of faith, this church that He is building. There is a unity that is an illustration here similar to the union between man and wife, between husband and wife. A union that is two becoming one. And what He's saying here is, is this is grounds for celebration. Grounds for celebration that I am here to not only take away their sin, but to heal their sickness. I am here to remove their sin. I'm here to forgive them. I'm here to get away or, or to put away the guilt and the shame that they have felt from their sin that they have that they are now perceiving as they are indirect or uh, engaging with me who's perfect and holy. Like Peter, when he's in the boat in the catch. And he bows down at the feet of Jesus and he says, depart from me, for I am a wicked man. And Jesus is saying, no, we're going to celebrate together because no longer are you a wicked man. Same thing what we saw with the paralytic, same thing as we saw last week. They continue time after time and time to be brought up from their state of humility and shame and guilt. And Jesus is saying, no, 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 we're going to feast. We're going to celebrate I'm going to turn that shame into joy. I'm going to turn that guilt into happiness. And we're going to engage in that because I am the bridegroom. And another thing that was kind of often mentioned was the bridegroom had what was considered the sons of the bride court or the sons of the bridegroom. And those were essentially the family and the friends that were invited to the wedding. And the family and friends that were invited to the wedding were allowed access to everything that was going to be offered in the wedding, all right? Similar to kind of what we do today where you get the invitation to the wedding. When you're there, you just get to partake. You get to eat everything that is there. And, and, um, and that's essentially what Jesus is doing here in this moment. As he's talking about this feast, he is telling them what we are doing with my disciples right now is we are celebrating the foreshadowing of the eventual wedding feast that we are going to have when I return the second time. When I come back the second time, right now is just kind of a, a, a dry run. We're doing this and we're going to do this because it's necessary. Whenever people are with me, they should celebrate. That's what he's saying. They should celebrate. Because I've taken away everything that would cause them to not celebrate. I've removed it. I've removed it. And not only that, but I'm not distant. I'm in union with them. I'm in union with them. The Christian life is a feast. It's a feast. And it, it actually should be a funeral that shifts to being a feast. Because you do die to yourself. You do let the old pass away and the new has come. That, that uh, verse that we just had up on the screens during the confession. The new has come. And so we get to mourn for a moment... The sin that we had and the life that we had in our old flesh. 
But that mourning, that grieving, that, that, that groaning that we have to get rid of that gets to go away. And then we get to enter into a feast. The Christian life is a feast. It's not a funeral. The second illustration that he shows here is he talks about a new patch on old garment. He also told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new. And the piece from the new will not match the old Again, this illustration of the cloth reminds us that he came to bring spiritual wholeness. He did not come to just patch us up. All right? He didn't come to patch us up. And he didn't come to patch up an old system of religion in order to complete it in a way. He in and of himself fulfilled it in order to then usher in a new way. Usher in a new belief system that is centered wholly on Jesus Christ alone. Now, we can get in to what is that relationship then between the Old Testament law and the new covenant that has come in. Do, do we then, in this, I mean, you hear the, uh, or, uh, Paul's language as he walks through Galatians like this. Do we nullify the law because of Jesus coming in? And essentially says he's not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. The law serves a specific purpose. The law helps us realize that we are sinners. It does not help us be our own savior. Period. That's why Paul says, like, how would I know I was a liar if I didn't know don't lie? How would I know I was a murderer if it said don't murder? How would I know these things if someone didn't tell me that? If someone didn't lead me in that way? And that's why it's important. Like, teach your kids law. Because it helps them see that they can't do it. It helps them understand that they can't do it. We need to observe that. We need to see that. We need to understand that even just looking at the Ten Commandments, which again, is not the only ten, right? There's over 600 commandments that, that eventually get added into the entire system of the Old Testament covenant. But when it comes to that, it leads us to our need for a Savior. It does not save us. And it cannot save us. And so what Jesus is, is kind of putting on illustration here is He's bringing in this idea that Him being the new garment, you can't take a piece of me, and attach it to this old system that is broken and try to complete it. What you just need to do is just put on the new garment. You clothe yourself in Jesus Christ rather than trying to take pieces of Him. What He's essentially saying is stop with your syncretism. And that is the view, and honestly this is highly because of the Roman road system back in the early day. If you read through Colossians, you'll see this idea that because of the Roman road system and the access to city and city and city, that they were able to borrow from other religions and start to piece together these new types of religions and this new way of thinking. And that's essentially what, these, um, uh, what Jesus is telling them not to do. When I come in, don't try to attach me to a different system. It's not going to work. It no longer remains the new garment. Rather, you tear the garment and then you try to put it to the other one and it doesn't match. It doesn't match. So we can't do that. He then gives another illustration. The new and old wine and the new old wine skins. It says, no one puts new wine 
into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins and it will be spilled. And the skins will be destroyed. But the new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. The image of the wineskins teaches that he gives spiritual fullness. Jewish religion was worn out wineskin that would burst if filled with the new wine of the gospel. And what Jesus did not come to, he, basically he did not come to, to renovate Moses or even mix law and grace. He came with new life and new wineskins. He's the new wine and he's bringing new wineskins, which are ultimately, it's kind of a, it's a foreshadowing picture of our glorified bodies that we'll get. That, that it doesn't work with our old self. It doesn't work with our broken down hoopty bodies right now. That's why currently we groan. We groan. We don't like getting older. We don't like aging. We don't like those things. We're kind of in this weird phase right now of new wine Jesus and old wine skins. But we are eventually going to get new wine skins when he glorifies us and restores us back to an intended, creative body. And the fourth one, and I think again is, is the best one, is he shifts it here because this one is not the same thought with what we just read. He actually just centers it down to himself. No one after drinking old wine desires new. For he says, the old is good. Someone, a lot of theologians try to look at that and say, man, this is, or at least Jewish law tries to look at this and say, see, the old is good. And he's saying, no. There's a wine that's been aging way longer than anything this world has ever seen. And it's the eternal Son of God. He's good. He's good. And when you taste Him, and when you savor Him, and when you treasure Him above anything and everything else, you look at everything else, and you no longer desire it. You no longer desire it. Jesus is saying, I come and quench thirst. I'm the bread of life. I'm the vine. Drink of me. It's good. It's good. I think so many times for us, one of the things, and this is, this is a, an application, this is a practice. I want you to just work this out this week. Again, we, we love confession. We love diving into that. We love being able to bring where we're falling and failing and fumbling and doing all those things. We love to bring that to the table to provide some relief for our souls. We, we love to do that. At the same time, at the same time, if all we ever do on a daily basis is just view our failures and our fumblings and our faults and we don't sip and savor and consume Jesus, then sometimes we never get past the confession. 
Sometimes we still hold on to it. And we don't actually throw it off. We don't actually give it up. We're still holding on to it. And what I want us to do this week, I want us to just take some rhythms. This is not a go and fast. This is a go and feast on Jesus this week. If, if you're a wine drinker, um, like, don't go and just indulge yourself in that. But what I'm saying is, like, you know what I'm saying. Like, there's, and I'm not a wine drinker, so I'm going to mix over to bourbon real quick. So, and it's fine. Uh, <laughs> thank you, father-in-law. Um, no, I was, that just, anyways, this gets recorded. But um, I, I like, when I drink bourbon, I like to just smell it first. Smell it first. Because you get different notes there. You get different flavors there. You get different senses there. And then the first sip always tastes like just jet fuel. And so you get the first sip kind of out of the way. And then you let that one go for a minute. And then you take the second sip. And the second sip you start to just taste a little bit more. A little bit more flavor to it. A little bit more boldness. And then when you take the third sip you actually start to get down to the fruit notes or the caramel notes or the oak notes that are in it. And it actually starts to be an enjoyable process at that point. Um, what I want us to do with Jesus this week is I want us to take some kind of process like that. When we wake up in the morning, I want us to just take some moment and just, I mean, it sounds, I'll sniff Jesus, I don't know. Like, take some moments to sip and savor. We're, we cannot let this one go out. On. But we just need to take some moments and just spend time treasuring Christ. I think there's going to be some ways that we can do that. I think there's ways, if you journal, then just write down all the beautiful qualities that you see in Jesus Christ. Just make a list of them. If it's and if like if you're someone who's married and in a relationship and you're like you always kind of think through those types of qualities. I love that they serve me in this way, or I love that they do this, and I love that they do that. Like like write it out in that way. I love this about Jesus. And then I want you to just sit and think about in your specific life how has He actually served you in those ways? How has He actually came and and feasted with you in those ways? How has he showed up in your life? And I want you to then write out kind of next to that list of things, the specific moments in your life where that, those are happening, how you've experienced him in those ways. And then I just want you to look at it and just treasure it. Treasure it. Maybe even then take it a step further and cook yourself a fantastic meal. For me, that's going to be a, a, a medium rare steak with maybe a glass of bourbon, some vegetables on the side, and I'm just going to sit and just savor it, not worshiping the meal, but I'm going to, in that moment, as I'm partaking of that steak, I'm going to say, you know what, that flavor that I'm tasting, Jesus thought of it, created it for my enjoyment. To steward it, not to abuse it, to steward it for my enjoyment. I can feast in this moment and thank Jesus for his goodness and common grace to us. 
Like, if, if it's for the kids in the room, like, make the best mac and cheese and chicken nuggets that they can just indulge themselves with. Like, whatever it looks like. Some of the adults are like, amen, I'll take that. Bacon. Every morning. But let's just, let's just do that, guys. That's what Jesus is telling us in this passage. Why should they fast when I'm with them? Let them feast. Let them feast. Let them enjoy every moment of this. Let them be joyful and let them be happy. So that's your, that's your, that's your uh, charge this week. Be joyful and happy. Enjoy Christ. Enjoy Christ. Enjoy the feast that he's brought for us. All right? And what we're going to do right now is start that off. We're going to start that off with communion. So I want you to go ahead and stand up. I want you to go ahead and come on down front and grab the elements. Thank you for listening to a sermon from the District Church. For more information about us, please visit www.thedistrict.church. Additionally, if any of our sermons have brought encouragement to you, would you please let us know by emailing us at info at thedistrict.church.